Kristen, since you are already spotlighted and on the screen, um, I just want to ask uh, one question here that someone had, uh, and and how do we keep the left, um, you know, from sort of grabbing uh, our history of support of affirmative action, you know, reshaping that into their movement consciousness, the, the, the way that they sort of jump on whatever's hot, whatever's moving, they jump on there and they just run with it. Uh, how do we keep them from running with programs like affirmative action, the intent of affirmative action to be restorative, um, to help people with economic uplifting, the educational uplift? How do we keep the left from hijacking that narrative and hijacking the work that uh, we began? Well, that's a very good question, and 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 I can answer that in this manner. We have to be bold up front. For too long, um, conservatives, African Americans, we have taken a back seat when it comes to subject matters like this. Uh, just for instance, a lot of people don't realize, and I learned this when I got appointed by Governor Deal, the Georgia Commission on Equal Opportunity. We were um, required to enforce the civil rights, not enforce, but uh, Civil Rights Act of 1965, which brought in uh, discrimination against housing. And a lot of people don't understand and did not, uh, don't know, former U.S. Senator Edward Brooks from Massachusetts, that was his signature legislation to ensure that Blacks were not discriminated against when it came to housing. That was Republican legislation, first black senator from uh, from Massachusetts, Senator Edward Brooks. So we have to be out front, and we have to be out front with making sure that the uh, playing field is level for everyone, and that will take that mantle away from the left. We have been too reluctant to speak up when it comes to that. And we are for, as I said to my staff down at the Capitol, an equal opportunity doesn't mean an equal outcome. It depends on what you do with that outcome. So we have to be upfront with that and be more uh, focused on presenting that to the lab that no, you're not going to take that. We're going to be upfront with that and present that to opposing sides as well. Thank you so much, Mr. Everson. Uh, thank you so much for answering that question. This actually came from one of our fellow panelists, so how appropriate um, that was. I want to move on to an, another education question, uh, well, a question about education. Um, uh, Dr. Babbages, I think this is an appropriate question for you. I know for me, I have focused on um, starting charter schools with civic education as a, as a really an emphasis. We have our Second charter school opening in North uh, in, in North Cobb in Kennesaw, Northwest Classical, um, a more compass focused public charter education um, with civic education being a focus. Of course, our first school was the Atlanta Classical Academy in Buckhead. Um, so this question is very uh, dear to my heart. Uh, Jared asks, considering what's being taught in public schools in areas with the largest population of lower income American families. My question is, what type of education should we be focusing on? That's from Jared. Thank you, Jared, for the question. I want to answer that in a, a diverse way because there was a couple of other questions that piggyback or, or book in this topic. 
first of all, we, we need to get conservatives, Republicans elected to our boards of education and also our county commission positions, because those people hold the power over what is being taught. Um, if we look at the state level, for example, I'm a teacher in DeKalb County Schools. I know that Georgia looks to Texas, New York, and California for where we're going to purchase our books. In DeKalb County, for example, I was on the last book adoption that was over a decade ago. That is technically against the law, but economics being what they are, we make accommodations for that. But who is suffering as a result of those accommodations? It's black kids. So we need to help teachers in the public school system. We can't, for all the programs and all the other schools that we need to offer, we also can't forget about our public school option because that's where a lot of kids are still going to be attending school. So we need to equip them by making sure that they have the resources to teach um, a diverse population. I know we're not supposed to be plugging ourselves, but I wrote a book about this. Um, you know, we have so many different student personalities in a classroom that a single teacher without the appropriate training will never be able to meet their needs because the disintegration of the family. Again, this everything that we're talking about is all cyclical. But as far as um, what we're teaching our kids, we need to go back to teaching civics. We need to go back to teaching the truth of the history of our country because that does shape the narrative of, an, of America. And black kids historically do not know that narrative. It is left out because teachers have the proclivity to teach whatever they want when that door is shut. So we need to make sure from the uh, legislative perspective that we've elected people who are going to put conservative um, policies and principles in our Board of Education. We have to make sure that we have the resources for those teachers so to equip them to teach. And then we also have to continue to offer the options for other school or other educational settings for those parents who choose it. Thank you, Dr. Babbages. You know, I think that if we focus on those things that you just spoke of, a civic education, making sure people see, you know, who they are in their education, who America is in that in their education, all these other agenda-focused things, you know, uh, some of the left pushing uh, different agendas in schools, that stuff will be like float some jetsam. It will be, you know, just a distraction to the students, and they'll see it for what it is if we teach the core things that really make. Um, an educated mind, a critically thinking mind with a framework to build everything upon. So we thank you so much for that. We're going to shift now and uh, we're going to just uh, do, um, you know, one, one, one more question. And this one might be for you, Dr. Babbage, before we move on. Um, and this, this kind of gets into shop talk. And I know that everybody's been really sensitive watching as we've gone through this incredible pandemic with uh, COVID and trying to make sure that students remain in the education process. But then we know um, that political games, you know, in politics, you know, they always say take a tragedy and try and make political gain out of it. And certainly, or sometimes economic gain when people are just working on self-interest. So unions have come into uh, great interest and great uh, negotiation um, in, in our public uh, sphere when it comes to this COVID issue and returning teachers back to the classroom. Um, but this question, again, is from one of the, you know, interesting, uh, is one of our um, participants. How do we stop hurtful and deceptive policies like the 50% rules where teachers are told that 50% is the new zero? Um, how do we sort of mitigate even the, the power of unions and in, in teaching as it relates to what teachers want to do as opposed to what the union wants them to do? 
I would just short and sweet say accountability. You know, if, if you change the perspective of an educator, then you change the perspective of that classroom. We can't take away accountability from teachers right now. We actually can't take it away from parents. COVID shot in the arm schools that were already failing. And so it, it is not time for us to drop the ball and say we can't be accountable. We have to hold teachers accountable. We have to hold school boards accountable, but we also have to hold families accountable for making sure that the standard remains the standard and that it stays high because children will reach the standard if we expect that they do. Thank you so much for helping us with this segment. And now we move on to our next segment. Thank you so much, Dr. Babbages. Now we have up Minister Vivian Childs. Uh, somebody who uh, you know has raised a model family of her own, just really a great tree. Um, and we just want to get into um, this next segment where we're going to be talking about family, um, community, and uh, we are very, very privileged to have someone who uh, not only has studied it, has worked professionally in it, and has lived it herself, Vivian Childs. Thank you, Vivian, for joining us. Thank you, everyone, and thank you, Leo. Look up, move forward as a motto I wrote many years ago. My idea of community takes me back to my childhood until today. My remembrance of communities have visions of love, hate, hope, despair, success, and loss. What I gained through that remembrance was what I was taught to become. I was taught to become a truth teller, not a liar, a giver, not a taker, proud, not downtrodden. I watched how we shared, how we communicated, how we strategized, how we overcame. All of those things required working together for a successful outcome for all. Our community was built on an all about us attitude, not an all about me attitude. With all the society ills that was happening on the outside of our neighborhood, being on the inside of our neighborhood brought comfort and community. Do you remember the phrases, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me? Or as I taught my children, pick yourself up and talk with action, not words. Learn to listen, observe, and then conquer. A huge shout out to communities that teach us how to prosper together after election days. As a mother, grandmother, and educator, I was strict, a disciplinarian and a pusher. Yes, I was taught to be a pusher and a woman of integrity. The difference is what I pushed. I pushed education. I pushed integrity. I pushed personal responsibility. I pushed family. I pushed community. And most importantly, I pushed love. Community falls hard, so it will be easier for more of those that will follow. In college, UGA, we, we attended less than 100 Black students out of about 18,000 formed a community, a meeting place called the Black House. That house is where we parted, where we studied, and yes, where we mentored. Our focus should be to assist communities to be of the greatest potential that they are designed to be, to make sure that the accomplishments of unsung heroes are honored and celebrated. Chains need to be broken. Attitudes need to be changed, closed arms, but people like me need to be opened. 
I remember our communities and churches where blacks were given the encouragement and confidence to step forward, stand on their principles and be a proud people. I read that last year in September, 19 black families bought 97 acres of unincorporated land in Georgia. They're calling this new community freedom with hopes of expanding into a city and safe haven for black people. That's what we need more of. Handouts and hand ups have their place, but please, please, please do not let us forget how to reach for our own spoon. For example, there were times in the party when the only black face in the room was mine. There was no mentors that looked like me, opening doors for me. I once attended an event for a congressman and I was stopped and asked if I knew where I was. And I said, yes, I do. Representative Willa Talton, a friend of mine from Warner Robins was the first black Republican elected to the Georgia House of Representatives since Reconstruction. Guess what? He is recognizable in the community and a park has been established in his honor right here in Warner Robins in the community where he continues to serve. Growing up, our communities catered to our children's strengths and allowed them success in these strengths. We must find a way to restore faith and hope in the lives of our families. Hope, as I have defined, means helping our people every day. I'm going to leave you with this question. How do we take our political differences beyond election day for the sake of our beloved communities? Thank you. Thank you so much, Minister Childs. Thank you for your work in community. We thank you for your work in family and for always having such an inspiring word to share with us on where we should lift our threshold of acceptance. And yours has always been a standard bearer for us and we thank you for that work. Well, next bring up, I still call her commissioner, <laughs> June Wood. Uh, to our, our forum and to share a little bit about her leadership and community. Uh, we've been so grateful um, for what you've done uh, across Metro Atlanta and in your municipal leadership capacity, as well as your community leadership uh, capacity. June Wood, thank you for being with us. And you're still on mute, June, so I'm going to unmute you. For Let's see here, just a second. Oh, you might have to do it on your end. I'm looking at your mute. It says okay, you're- Okay, thank you. you. I'm sorry, I had yeah, yeah. No, that's quite, quite well, all right. Um, first of all, yeah, good afternoon, everyone. And of course, this esteemed panel. Um, it has just been just amazing and inspirational to, um, to be here and to, of course, speak at this moment. And I do want to thank uh, Mr. Divi and Charles, Minister Charles, for inviting me to speak about the families, which is a dear part of thought for me. Um, I want to begin by just sharing some things with you. Um, basically, since this is Black History Month, I'll focus on the, the Black family, even though all of our families are important to all of us as Republicans. But strong Black families used to be the norm. 
And today, many of our American families, especially our Black families, in my opinion, are in a crisis. And thinking about the historical view of Black families from 1890 to 1950, Black women had a higher marriage rate than white women. And then in 1950, just 9% of Black children lived without their father. But by 1960, the Black marriage rate had declined but remained close to the white marriage rate. So back in 2018, I read an article that the late Dr. Walter E. Williams wrote in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and it was April 3rd, 2018, if someone wants to go back and refer back to it. But it was titled, The Breakdown of the Family Unit is the Root of Our Problems, Especially in the Black Community. And then Dr. Williams went on to state some statistics, and he said that the, in 1938, only 11% of babies born to Black women were to unmarried women. By 1965, that number had jumped to 25% of the babies born to unmarried women. But in 2018, about 75% of our babies were born to unmarried women, having no father in the home. And he further says that this has a serious impact. And he described that impact by stating that five times that children with no father in the home were five times more likely to be poor and commit crimes, nine times more likely to drop out of school, and even 20 times more likely to be in prison. And this statement really just quench my thoughts as I was thinking about even some personal experiences is that he stated that our generous welfare system allows women to marry the government. Plus there's a shortage of marriage, marriageable black men because they drop out of school or some wind up in jail and having much of a future. So as I was looking and preparing for this panel, uh, there were other references, and thank you, Dr. Henry Childs, for helping me to pull some other uh, statistics that confirm what the late Dr. Walter Williams had stated. And in 2018, um, again, there were some other data that was presented, but the final thing before I move on from Dr. Williams is that he said that a John Hopkins professor um, in the 1960s stated, that the most detrimental aspect of the absence of fathers from one parent families is not just the lack of the male presence, but the lack of male income. And then in 1965, there was a report by Daniel Millennium, and by, it's called the Millennium Report. And there are some statistics from Andrew Billingsley Research and all of these again, examine the link between black poverty and the family structure. And all of them basically concluded this. And it says that because family structure influences the choices that children will make, controlling for race and parental income, boys raised without their father are much more likely to use drugs, engage in violent or criminal behavior, go to jail or drop out of, out of school. And girls, on the other hand, are more likely to engage in early sexual activity or have a child out of wedlock. And children without a father in the home are even more likely to suffer from mental health problems as adults. 
And so as I reviewed all of that, uh, again, some of the concluding comments came back. It says, despite open racism and widespread poverty, strong families used to be the norm. But by the mid-1980s, Black fatherlessness skyrocketed. And the issue of single-parent homes is now impacting not just the Black community, but all races and all ethnicities. As you even think about those that may be in your family or their friends or even church members, um, it is a real and is facing us right now. And as we continue to think about, you know, what can we do when we think about the Black families used to be the norm, um, even in the tough times that we're experiencing, how do we restore the village to raise our children? And how do we create that village to encourage and mentor, especially those single mothers or those single men or, that are out there that need some encouragement, that need to be encouraged uh, in faith, um, need to be encouraged to get higher education so that there is a better economy, especially for the sake of our children. And as I was reviewing all of this, I kept thinking, you know, um, there are some single mothers who have overcome some of these statistics. And I do want to commend them um, for, for overcoming statistics where their male children are, are successful and, um, and did not fall into the role of some of these statistics that are there. But then I began to ask the question, are some of these reasons why the abortion rate is high amongst a lot of our, 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 our mothers, our, our, our ladies nowadays? Um, it, it is, you know, troubled me that, you know, as I was looking at some statistics, it says that one in four women nowadays have had an abortion um, at least once, and only 1.5% of those are due to rape and incest. And then it stated that I didn't find the latest information for 2019 but it did state in 2017 there were over 862,000 abortions performed here in the United States. And so as we think about all of the challenges that we have overcome, but yes, there is much work to do. So I commend everyone who has decided to be a part of the solution um, to get engaged, to look for policies, because that's why I tell people nowadays, you've got to look at the policies and how it's impacting your lives. And don't get caught up in the rhetoric and all of the other drama that is out there. And you do need to become educated, which is why I stood even as um, chair, as a Republican um, here in Henry County, based on, again, very many principles and policies that are very important to us. So as we think about how do we move forward for hope, the good thing is there are many, many mothers and even fathers that are now enrolled in college. How do we embrace those and encourage them and mentor them and even offer um, scholarships and, and grants to help them move forward into their careers? There are also many that are interested in small businesses. If they've got a great business plan, how do we help support their entrepreneurship with seed money? And I think the most important thing that we need to do, we need to embrace those nonprofits and those churches that are actively and have already driven and proven some success to address those women who are pro-life, uh, those organizations that are pro-life. We need to support those organizations that are addressing trafficking, human trafficking. We need to address those organizations that are with um, a domestic violence. And more importantly, how do we begin to organize ourselves so that we can be the village that did exist some time before as those who want a hand up and not a hand out.
So again, we thank you for this opportunity to serve today and to be on this esteemed panel. And I'm just really excited that there's gonna be a part two so that it will allow others to help us engage further um, on policies and more importantly, get involved in our communities as well. So thank you again. Thank you so much, Commissioner Wood. And I, I just learned so much and I got re-inspired for community engagement listening to you. And uh, we just thank you so much for your voice and it comes with resonating experience and we're so grateful to have you. And there will be questions that we will have before we um, shift over to uh, Dr. Babbage's uh, for our two panelists on community and family. Um, and so we will uh, start here um, before we go to, to Dr. Babbage's. I kind of brought her in a little early there. So I'm gonna remove her and bring you back. And then we'll just start with you and then we'll go to um, the, the Minister Vivian Childs. Um, when you think about your work uh, in uh, community, and then you think about your work as a municipal leader. Um, what do we need to do more of as as political leaders to make sure that citizens are connected with the work that we're doing as someone who represents those citizens so they don't feel so disconnected? Okay. Um, so, Mr. Smith, is that directed to me or, or Dr. To you. Charles? To you. Okay. Well, um, I think it's been very clearly stated. Um, I, I think Dr. Babbage really um, made a great recommendation is that we've got to get engaged on those organizations, whether it is school boards, whether it is um, local um, city councils, commissioner seats, state representatives, of course, all the way from the local, state, and federal level so that we're able to actually influence the policies that are being um, developed. The second thing is, as um, Minister Childs has made, uh, made it known, it's been interesting that even in the community, um, to be saying, okay, to state that I'm a, a Republican, um, people kind of shun about that. It seems to have somewhat of a negative image because it seems as though that, you know, the Republicans are not engaged on the grassroots side of it. So to get engaged um, with the local organizations, especially around family partnerships, um, committees that are out there that will help us address some of the true concerns that, that we can also shape it would also be an awesome opportunity. And those nonprofit organizations, they need advocates, they need champions to help them, again, address pro-life, to address education, to address employment. And of course, I would say even with the Chamber of Commerce, that's where you can get involved to help the small businesses. Thank you so much. And this one for you, Minister Charles. Why are we so, this is from Sheila Appling um, to Minister Charles. Why are we so easily influenced by the left's culture revolution? Um, it has been devastating to our community. And, and she's asking specifically, how do we reverse this cultural revolution that the left has been about? And I'm gonna add another question to that, that sort of to simplify it. Another question we got was how do we um, sort of take back over the whole civil rights movement as, as concerned? Conservatives and Republicans. What is happening is instead of how we used to listen and decide how we move forward, a new era has happened and it's called media. And I don't disagree with the media because we need it. It's just the information that they portray and they say people use it now as the Bible instead of the Bible that we're accustomed to using. Nothing has changed. Our principles are the same. The platform is the same. It's the same uh, party 
that bred all of the things that happened even as early as Frederick Douglass and men such as that and women. So what we need to do is, and I tell people all the time, it's not important to be confrontational. Just give out the information that's provided. You know, stand on his word and don't compromise your principles. I think that is what happening so much. We sometimes you get upset because you don't understand why people don't get it, but you just have to be, you, you have to be caring. That's what I have to do. And especially as a minister, I, I speak to all. It doesn't matter to me how you vote on election day. What's important to me is what we do once that election day is over. We still have to love each other, but we cannot not stand on our principles. Let me put it like this. And you will we will find if you allow people to listen and if you're allowed to talk without saying that someone is not right, they will listen. And most mm -hmm. often they will tell you my my gosh, that is what I believe, absolutely. And I think that is the key. Let's not try to make people think that what they're doing is wrong. It may not be what we agree with and we know to be right, but we have to turn that thing around and let them see that we're following simply what God has asked us to do. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I'm going to um, kind of you know bring this question to everyone um, on the panel. And, and that is a, a question um, that again came from one of our panelists. And I think the, the panelists was just wanting to make sure that this question got answered from a historical perspective. And so anyone who would like to answer this, I think actually matter of fact, uh, um, Camilla Moore would be um, probably somebody who might want to answer this. So I'll bring you up. How did Woodrow Wilson's presidency affect blacks in civil rights? Do you think that Eisenhower was trying to dismantle his legacy? Um, and anyone who would like to answer that question, certainly uh, just go ahead and unmute and speak up. But um, um, Camilla, you have such well, a strong grasp on history. Right, and right. I just want so, to see, and I 